Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for October 9th, 2022, the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. And today we're looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, the fall into sin. Now, just a quick look back at Genesis 1 and 2. Remember, as God creates each day of the week of creation, often he says at the end of a day or at the end of some act of creating that he saw that it was good. And remember, in that creation, good means flawless and perfect. This isn't kind of the the beta testing before he gets around to the new creation. This isn't kind of a B-plus job that he's doing here. This is his perfect and holy works. When God says it is good, it's flawless. There is no sin in the world. There is no evil and there is no death. And remember, when God creates Adam and Eve, he creates them in his own image, which means that they reflect his righteousness they reflect his holiness as much as human minds can. They, they, they think like he does and that they will act according to his word naturally. So, for instance, where you and I struggle to be patient or we struggle to be kind or we struggle to be compassionate, they are naturally compassionate and patient and kind. And because God is love, Adam and Eve naturally love. They love God. They love one another. And the love that I mean here is the kind of love that is defined in the book of Romans as the keeping of the law. They will love God with their whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And they will love each other as themselves. When God creates Adam and Eve, he has created the perfect couple. There is no jealousy. There is no selfishness. Remember, there is no shame. They are naked and unashamed because there's no vanity or pride or discomfort with who they are. They are perfect in every way because they are created in God's image, reflecting his righteousness. With that in mind, they are the perfect couple. They're living in paradise God desires that they live with him forever. And the garden, this paradise, is a place where God comes to be with them. So it's not just enough for them to know that God, the creator, is, you know, around there somewhere, present everywhere. But God actually comes to walk with them in this garden that he's made to be their home. All right, so perfect man, perfect woman, living in paradise with God visiting. What could go wrong? Here's Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And we know that this serpent is no ordinary snake. This one is, in fact, Satan himself in the form of a serpent. And in fact, this is a theme that goes well beyond Genesis chapter 3. I mean, serpents are always creepy all by themselves, at least for most people. But throughout the Bible, every now and then, Satan is portrayed as a serpent and sometimes a big one. 
So for instance, in Isaiah chapter 27, he's called the twisting serpent of the sea. He's also called Leviathan, which is, of course, it's this gigantic sea serpent. And in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3 and following, he's, he's a serpent who has grown so much that he's, he's now the red dragon, all right? So after the fall into sin, Satan isn't just uh, portrayed as a serpent. He's a big, angry, ship-destroying, people-destroying serpent. For now, he's a pretty low-key serpent form here, and crafty more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this, in a nutshell, is how the devil works upon the people of God. He attacks God's word. If believers do not know God's word, they're easy pickings for Satan's temptations because he'll, he'll take something that sounds like God's word but isn't and make them believe that it is. In this case, because Eve knows the word of God, he's going to take God's word and modify it just a little bit. Now, before we move further, we should ask the question, how does Eve know what God has said? And I mentioned that just to refer you back to Genesis chapter 2, that before Eve is created, God gives to Adam the gift of his word. God tells Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing so, says Luther, God has made Adam to be Pastor Adam. So how does Eve know um, what God has said about the trees, well, as far as we know, Eve knows about this because Pastor Adam has been doing his job. He's been preaching the sermon. All right, Eve, two commandments. Eat from the tree of life. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so the serpent goes after Eve, after the woman, and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now Eve starts out pretty well quoting God and saying, God has said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then she adds this line, neither shall you touch it, which God hasn't said, at least as far as we know, but it's probably still pretty good advice. So, so perhaps Adam has added that in, perhaps Eve has. But she ends up saying, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, the word lest implies that there's risk, that there's a probability of harm. So, don't touch the red hot stove lest you be burned. It will probably happen, but not guaranteed. Um, lest does not have certainty to it. But God did give certainty. He said, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So already as Satan attacks the word of God, 
Eve modifies it just, just a little bit and says, God said, don't eat of this because there's a really, really good chance that we'll die where God said, you will surely die. Well, this is the devil's in. So he changes the word altogether and accuses God of being a liar. He says in verse 4, we read, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the temptation is not really about eating a piece of fruit. The temptation is to be like God. Specifically, says Satan, to be like God is to know the uh, to know both good and evil. Now, at present, at the end of verse 5, Adam and Eve do not know both good and evil. They only know good. They may not be aware of how good good is because everything is good. Remember, God created it and saw that it was good. So they may not realize the extent, extent of the goodness And they certainly don't understand what evil will do because they've never, ever seen evil. But in Satan's temptation, if they only know good and can know good and evil, it seems like then they become like God by doubling their knowledge. Well, never will more knowledge become less. I would love to only know good and not know evil. I think perhaps the thing I look most forward to about heaven is not knowing evil anymore. I would love to know only good. I would love that everything be good and there be no evil. But that's the devil's temptation in verse 5. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So, says verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the woman looks at the tree and sees that it's good for food. The fruit looks delicious and the fruit is edible, so it's it's good, apparently, in her eyes. It's a delight to her eyes, in fact. It's a a tree that produces beautiful-looking fruit, so it's tantalizing to her eyes and and, and to her taste buds both. And now she sees its desire to make one wise, because why know just good when when you can know both good and evil? So she takes of its fruit, and she eats. And she gives some to her husband who is with her, and he eats too. Which means, Pastor Adam, he ain't doing his job. What should Pastor Adam be doing when the serpent is there tempting his wife? Pastor Adam should be speaking the word of God. That's what pastors are called to do when the devil's 
lurking around. But instead of speaking the truth, speaking God's word and warding off the devil, instead Adam stays quiet and he eats the fruit along with Eve. Now, if the tree is good for food and it's a delight to the eyes and it makes one wiser, what's wrong with eating it? Answer, God has said, don't eat from that tree. You will be tempted at times to say, I know that God says this is wrong, but it certainly looks right or seems right or feels right. But whether it seems or looks or feels right, the question is, has God said yes or has God said no? Everything about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looked good, except that God said, don't eat of it. Eve eats of that fruit. She gives them to Adam and he eats and their eyes are opened. They know that they are naked. And this is where where naked and ashamed comes in. Remember, they were naked and unashamed before. No vanity, no no uh, self-centeredness, no no embarrassment about what they looked like. They didn't care because there was no evil. Now, they've brought sin to the world. Now, they've brought evil into the world. And so now they realize um, they're their sinfulness. They, they know that they are no longer um, reflecting God's image. They know that they are no longer righteous. And it's characterized here as, as saying that they, were, they knew that they were naked, and, and so they had to cover their nakedness. In other words, they, they now feel exposed before God, not just in body, but in soul. They don't want God to see their nakedness of, of, of their bodies. They don't want God to see the nakedness of, of, their, of their troubled conscience. And so they, uh, they sew fig leaves together and they make themselves loincloths to, to cover their genitalia. Now, it's, it's um, the natural reaction of sinners. You do something wrong, you want to hide the wrong. You want to cover up the shame. So if you break something, you try to hide it. You maybe try to get rid of it and hope that nobody notices that it's broken and gone. Um, if, if, you, uh, if you're the guy who, who hits the ball through somebody's living room window, you run and you hide and pretend that it wasn't you. Adam and Eve figure that if they sow fig leaves to cover up their private parts and hide from God, maybe, maybe he just won't notice that the whole universe is falling apart. But it is. Their sin has brought death not just to them, but to all things, to the entire creation. It's now corrupted by by sin because of their disobedience. It's really something God gave them dominion over the earth. He, He made them stewards of creation to take care of it. And now by their sin, they've, uh, they've, they've destroyed creation. It's only a matter of time until it's, until it's, it ends. All right. So verse eight, and they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now note how God acts here because he is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows that Adam and Eve have sinned. And so what does he do? He operates not by sight, but by sound. He lets them hear him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So, you know, I, I imagine him like looking for twigs to step on and snap, just so they can hear his footfalls that much better. And when he gets close to them, he calls out, Where are you? Why does this matter? Because it shows the mercy of God. In Exodus 33, verse 20, we hear God say that no one can look upon his glory and live. So, here in, uh, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, God in all his glory comes to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. But if he jumps out right in front of them and says, how you doing? They can't look upon his glory and live. So instead, he lets himself be heard. And to keep them from being destroyed immediately, he calls out to them. He sends forth his word. So verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, note that Adam doesn't, doesn't answer the question where he is, but he's, he's nearby enough that he speaks back to God. Adam also doesn't confess his sin. And, and we're really good about this, too, when we do something wrong. Rather than just acknowledge we did it, we try to distract with other details. So, uh, you know, I heard you, Lord, and I happened to notice that creation is not looking so good right now, and when I... I heard you, I was afraid, and I was naked, and I, I hid. Rather than just say his sin, rather than just confess his sin to God, he tries to, to uh, go off on tangents, avoid the topic. God will have nothing of it, and he says in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? By the way, who told Adam that he was naked? No one did. He and Eve just knew it. You and I really don't need someone to tell us that we've done wrong because God gives you something called a conscience. And unless you've seriously seared or dulled your conscience, it's there to accuse you and say, You've sinned against God. So, no one has told Adam that he is, he is naked. Rather, Adam is aware because he's now conscious of his sin. So, God says, Who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Huh. So, there are three living beings, three kind of main characters in the story. There's God, there's Adam, and there's Eve. 
And when God says to Adam, did you eat from the tree that you weren't supposed to eat from? Adam responds by saying, the woman whom you gave to be with me gave me the fruit and I ate. In other words, well, okay, I might have eaten the fruit, but it's not my fault. It's the woman's fault because she gave me the fruit. And, oh, by the way, God, it's your fault because you created the woman and gave her to me. And so really, the two of you are guilty for the sin and I am not. This is called self-justification. Remember, justification is a big word in Lutheran theology. To justify someone is to declare them not guilty. And so God justifies us for Jesus' sake. He says, since Jesus has taken your sin and your guilt on himself and died, I declare you not guilty. I justify you. Here, Adam is all about self-justification. Okay, Lord, I ate the fruit, but I declare myself not guilty because it's your fault and Eve's fault. But self-justification never works, and it doesn't matter because the guilty aren't allowed to pass the verdict on themselves. So Adam blames Eve, and he blames God. And in verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, She's not ready to confess her sin either. And both Adam and Eve remind us of what our sinful nature does and how our sinful nature acts. And that when we have done something wrong, the last thing we want to do is say, yep, I did that. I was wrong. Adam passed the buck. Hey, God, it was you and the woman. Eve passes the buck as well in two different ways. One, she says, the serpent deceived me. In other words, the devil made me do it. And she might as well add, the serpent whom you created, by the way, God, he gave me the fruit. So it's really the devil's fault and your fault, but it's not my fault. Now, these excuses do not fly. Did God give Eve to Adam? Yes, he did. He also gave Adam his clear, true word, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Doesn't matter what Eve did or didn't do, Adam had God's word straight from God's mouth, and he still failed to follow it anyways. Did, uh, did Eve take the fruit once she was deceived by the serpent? Yeah. So she can blame the serpent's words all she wants, but once again, through Adam, God has given her his word. She knows what is right, she knows what is wrong, and she sins anyways. So for Adam and for Eve and for you, you cannot use the excuse, the devil made me do it. I mean, for crying out loud, you're baptized. You're set free from sin and death and devil. You are, uh, you are kept holy by, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. You have no excuse to say the devil made me do it because you rest in God's grace.
Moving on then to verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. All right, so God curses the serpent and says, from now on you'll crawl in your dust or you'll slither through the dust on your belly. Which always makes me wonder, yeah, how, how, how did snakes get around before the fall into sin? Do they have a bunch of legs like a, like a centipede? Did they have a couple of sets of wings on the front and the back? Um, we, we, we don't know, but um, serpents are creepy enough as it is. And, and, and now they will spend their days in the dust to remind us of the curse of sin. Because dust becomes a, um, a reminder of death. In fact, and if we read on to Genesis 3, verse 19, we'd hear that um, when God tells Adam that death has come into the world, he says, um, uh, you're created out of dust, and to dust you shall return. So as, uh, as uh, time goes on, as the serpent slithers through the dust, uh, so the devil and death will, will go together too. Finally then, verse 15, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the proto-gospel or the first time that the gospel is heard in the Bible. And it's really quite remarkable. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've brought death into the world. The whole magnificent creation is falling apart because of what they have done. And the first thing God says is not, you guys are in big trouble, but he announces that the Savior is coming. And this is what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity is what enemies have. It's hostility. So, Satan, there will be hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, that translation in the English Standard Version is not wrong, but it could be better. Because the word there for offspring in the Hebrew is literally seed. Seed singular, all right? So offspring can be a singular or a plural. Seed can be as well. In this case, it's a singular noun. So it'll be, I, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And with that statement, God says something kind of puzzling. You see, in basic biology, women don't have seed. Women have eggs. Men have seed. And when a man and a woman really love each other, well, that's for a different podcast. The point being, seed of the woman doesn't make sense. Seed of the man would 
egg of the woman would, seed of the woman does not make sense unless God is kind of mysteriously saying that somewhere along the way, a woman will have a male child without the help of a man, so it'll be her own seed somehow, and this is the one who will defeat Satan. So right there in the first half of verse 15, we have the proclamation of the virgin birth, that by the will of God, the Virgin Mary eventually will have a baby boy named Jesus who will save his people from their sin. So I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. Now, another question that should arise in our minds is, um, we know that the seed of the woman is Jesus. Who are the offspring of the devil, the seed of the devil? And, and certainly you can make the case that, that the demons, the evil angels, are, are his, his followers, his children, and thus his, his offspring. Um, and that, that's, that's a, uh, a view widely held. I wonder if there's a different possibility, however, because three times in Matthew and one time in Luke... Jesus or John the Baptist called the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers, which is the offspring of vipers. So I wonder if God is building into this, uh, into this prophecy of the gospel that this battle will be between the seed of a woman and 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 men, false teachers who oppose Jesus by teaching can be saved by your own works, which is, in fact, a teaching of the devil. Some commentators don't mind that interpretation. Some commentators don't like that, tra- that interpretation. Personally, I think, it, I think it's got a lot going for it. God is actually kind of giving us a scene of, how, uh, of, of, of where and how the gospel will take place. Jesus, the woman's offspring, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, the the offspring of the devil because they oppose Jesus. Then in the second half of the verse, God says this, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now the word there for bruise can also mean crush. And it's the same form in both the first half and the second half of the verse. The, um, the King James Version, I remember, takes some liberty here and says, um, He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Same word in the King James Version actually conveys what happens. Jesus certainly bruises the head of the serpent because he defeats Satan fully at the cross. He crushes the serpent's head, if you will, in order to save us. Does Jesus suffer for our salvation? Yeah. It's, uh, it's the equivalent of getting your heel bruised. And a bruised heel hurts. And it takes a while to heal up. And so in this kind of poetic prophecy, God says to Satan, the seed of the woman is going to crush you, going to crush your head. You'll hurt him. In fact, we find out later he'll die on a cross, but it's only like a heel bruise. It'll get better. He'll rise again from the dead because he will be the savior of the nations.
So, Adam and Eve live in paradise. They fall into sin because they stop listening to God's word and they listen to the devil's temptations instead. And when they have sinned, what's the first thing that God does? He doesn't say, oh, you're in big trouble now. He will, in fact, announce consequences for their sin in the following verses. But first off, he declares this, that because he is gracious and merciful, he's sending a savior, one who will be born of a woman, to defeat Satan, to crush him, to crush his power, so that his people might have life forever. All right, that's a quick look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. God bless your further meditations upon it. And and if you are teaching this to others, God bless your efforts and your teaching. And um, the Lord be with you until we speak again. Until then, goodbye.